in the process of dealing with a cold that my wonderful baby boy gave to me. Um, and it is a gift that keeps on giving. So uh, if I'm a little off today, please give me a little bit of grace. Um, or try not to pick on me too much. Or this may be the opportunity to pick on me. Um, can you take the monitors down for me? There's too much echo up here. I'm drowning in my own voice. Um, let's pray real quick in preparation for the message. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us today. I pray that you would uh, help me to speak in ways that reflect your word and help me to be uh, concise and, and um, not just put myself in this, but make it about you. In Christ's name, amen. We are preaching, or I am preaching through a series right now on uh, becoming a man after God's own heart. Um, this is a series that is specifically uh, very oriented toward men. There is application for everyone. Uh, if you are someone who is offended, I had somebody, one of my high school kids from, from youth group years and years and years ago sent me an email saying, I'm really enjoying this series. And he said, uh, have any of the women in your church gotten mad at you yet? Uh, for not doing women's sermons, doing man's sermons. And I said, well, these all apply, and nobody's gotten mad at me yet. So if you're mad at me, please let me know so I know to um, be less, I don't, me, I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, in the last week's message, we looked at um, kind of, well, we started this series, we looked at what it means to be a man after God's own heart. We looked at prayer as sort of the pathway to get to that place. Last week, we looked at um, sort of a list that Paul gave us for how to, like, what are the things that you need to be working on? And there were five items. It was uh, pay attention so you don't fall asleep or so bad things don't creep up on you, right? Uh, Stand firm, act like a man, or be courageous, like in a mature way. Um, And the fourth one, which escapes me at the moment, and then um, do everything in love. Um, and, and looking at that list, I realize it's a tall order, even if I could remember all five. Um, it, it is a tall order. And um, I, I kind of spent my week thinking about this, and I, I decided I would start with a video clip. And we will see how that goes, because I have not tried a video clip in a service in quite a while. Have I? Um, and we're using new software. And so between the two, this may not work, but this is a clip from a movie or a series of um, a miniseries, I guess is what it was, Band of Brothers. Did anybody see this? Um, this takes place during World War II. Um, and specifically, this, this particular um, 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 division or, or uh, group that's being followed, I'm very sick today, I'm sorry, I'm struggling with words. Um, they are in training, and, and what's going on is they are, their, their officer is making them train every day, and, and as we start the clip, the other groups of soldiers are going out on pass, and these guys are going running, and, and you know, they're, they're frustrated because, you know, everybody else gets time off, and these guys are training, and that's all they're doing. They're running, they're working out, and we're going we're gonna to watch this clip. This is Curahi is the mountain they're running up. It is three miles up, three miles down. And if you want to... Hey, where are you running? Don't worry, we'll take your dance to the movies for you. Yeah, it's good. They need some females Help that man! 
short clip and it's all running, right? Anybody enjoy running? By the way, can anybody here run three miles in 23 minutes up a mountain? Just Justin, right? Does anybody believe Justin? <laughs> Just Brooke. <laughs> um, the reason I picked out this clip, um, watching this, I remember the first time I watched it and it jumped out at me as to how brutal what these guys were doing was, right? I mean, Running six miles in, you know, 40-some-odd minutes up a mountain, down a mountain. You know, guys stumble. You can't let them. You're not supposed to help pick them up and let them, you know, help them up. They're, they're supposed to get up and run on their own. You have to, I mean, the way that they trained was ridiculous. Um, easy company only. And, in fact, they, the soldiers, if you watch the whole episode, they're all complaining that, well, we're training harder than anyone else. Why are we having to do more than everyone else? Why do we have to do this? Everyone else gets to. And then as you progress into the series, Easy Company ends up, I think actually the culmination of it um, happens at the Battle of the Bulge, where Easy Company is basically surrounded by the German army, and they hold out for days in sub-zero weather, and they, they um, are rescued by Patton's army eventually. And they, uh, historically, the guys who were in the company complained, well, we didn't need to be rescued. <laughs> we could have we kept going. Um, and what happened is, um, and it's the advantage of training, training prepares you physically, right? But it also prepares you for hardship. If you can step into a hard situation and keep training even though it doesn't count, it makes you tougher on the other side when it does count, right? Um, I had a guy who used to say to me once a week, he would say, the harder you sweat in peace, anybody know the rest of this? The less you bleed in war, the more you sweat in peace, the less you bleed in war. And in, in this clip, what we're watching is this, this sweating and this training. And the way that we, um, as we look at Paul's list of what we're called to be as men, um, the way to accomplish it is through training. It's through effort. It's through practice. It's through this process of effort to become something more. It is not an instant. It is an effort. Um, training will always, always beat trying hard, right? I, uh, I remember years ago I was training for a marathon, a half marathon, 
and I was talking with a group of these, these kids at the children's home I was working at, and I said, well, wait a minute. I run like 10 miles every day. This guy over here, he doesn't run at all, and he smokes two packs of cigarettes a day, and he's about 40 pounds overweight. If we both go out and run 10 miles, who's going to win? You. Me, of course. I always win. Right, Brooke? Um, <laughs> and, and I said, well, what if this other guy tries really, really, really hard? Will he beat me? Well, it doesn't matter how hard you train. If you can't run 10 miles, you can't run 10 miles, right? Um, and the reality is that becoming a man after God's own heart, maturing as a Christian man is a process of training. And we're going to pick this up in Matthew, this idea, specifically at the calling of Matthew. This is Matthew 9. Jesus has been teaching and calling disciples. He's got a lot of his disciples already, right? And we've already been through the Sermon on the Mount. And actually, this section begins with Jesus traveling through the region and preaching the gospel and healing people, okay? And that's actually a sentence, and we'll see that sentence in a minute again, um, sort of as a bookend, because Matthew is creating a section here. And um, in the entire section, this is chapter 7, part of chapter 7, most of chapter 8, most of chapter 9, Jesus heals people over and over again. And it's a theme in the chapter, right? He argues a little theology here and there, but for the most part, like he heals two demon-possessed men. He heals a leper. By the way, leprosy, if you had leprosy in the ancient world, you would have to yell at people from far away that you were unclean and they needed to avoid you so they wouldn't catch it. You weren't allowed in cities. You had to live in leper colonies outside of town. And you would just die slowly. It was horrible. You would decompose as you lived and you would fall apart. And it was one of the worst ways to die. And Jesus heals this leper, actually touches this leper, which is unheard of in the ancient world. And like instead of the leper making Jesus unclean, he makes the leper clean. Because Jesus comes in contact with folks and he makes them right. Um, He heals Peter's mother-in-law and Peter followed him anyway. Um, he heals a man who is paralyzed. Um, he brings a little girl to life. Mind you, he comes to this little girl, a dead body. Jewish men did not touch dead bodies because it made you unclean. And instead of Jesus becoming unclean, he made the little girl be alive. Um, he's walking in a crowd of people and a woman who had been bleeding, for, um, for like 12 years, comes up to him and touches him. Instead of Jesus being made unclean, she is healed, right? And so this whole passage, this whole chapter, it follows this theme. Jesus makes people whole. Jesus makes people healed. Jesus makes people right, right? And this is over and over again. And smack dab in the middle of it, we come across Matthew. And Matthew is um, also called Levi, by the way. Um, Levi... Like Jewish men, it was very common for them to have two names. You would have a Jewish name and you would have a Greek name. And the Greek name was so everybody could say your name. And the Jewish name was so that you could have a Jewish name in your own community. Got it? (laughs) Matthew is his Greek name. And it's the name that the book is named. Um, And so he is Matthew. And he is a tax collector. Who loves the local tax collector? Real quick. Anyone? Not even the people married to him. Um, In the ancient world, tax collectors were considered to be traitors to the nation. They were considered to be the lowest form of life, okay? These were people who, um, in a conquered nation, went to the enemy that conquered them and said, you know what, I will collect money from my neighbors for you, for a fee. And they did just that. They would collect money from their neighbors, and like 
they were hated, and oftentimes they were assassinated and things like that. It was a an awful, awful, awful gig to get into, and it was generally like the case that you were hated by everyone. You weren't welcome at the temple. You weren't welcome at synagogue. You weren't welcome pretty much anywhere. Couldn't testify in court. Right? Like if there was a court case and you were witness to something, they didn't want to know your opinion. Um, way on the bottom of the totem pole, right? Way, way down there. By the way... How do you think tax collectors made their money? By collecting as much as they wanted. Does that make sense? Like, and that was the motivation for doing this job. It wasn't a nine-to-five you could have. It was a way to get rich by ripping off your neighbor, which is part of the reason they were really unliked. So Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, this reads like a really simple little Thing. It's almost a blowover portion. But what happens there is funny. Um, Matthew is a tax collector. He's failed out of religious school probably, right? Every Jewish boy from the, like pretty much from the point where they could start talking, they would begin practicing memorizing. Got it? And they, everything was mnemonic devices like, or alliterations or different ways of memorizing. And the whole culture was centered around Jewish boys learning the Bible, And you would learn the Bible starting as a little kid, and then you would go into formal education, and you would start learning the Bible in formal education, and by a certain point it was expected that you would learn the entire old, or excuse me, the first five books of the Old Testament. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, five books. If you want, you've got a Bible in front of you, look at how many pages that is, by the way. That is not a small thing. And you would have about five years to do it in. And you would go to school every day and you would memorize. And you would memorize and you would memorize. It was the only thing they taught in Jewish school. Well, the only other thing, actually. They also taught you how to swim. How weird is that? They lived in the desert. But whatever, it worked for Noah, I guess. Um, (laughs) So, they, they would learn the first five books. And once you were done with that, if you were good enough... Well, if you weren't good enough, they would kick you out and you would go learn a trade, right? And you see other guys who've done this already. So like Peter, right, is called an unlearned man probably because he didn't get far in school and he was a fisherman. He probably went for his requisite time and they said, all right, go be a fisherman. And other guys, they'd be like, well, go be a farmer. Go be this. Go be that. And they would just kick you out of school and you would. But if you were good enough, then you would start memorizing the prophets. And then you would memorize the rest of the Old Testament. And then you would memorize the Talmud and the Mishnah. I have a copy of the Talmud and the Mishnah, not a physical copy. I have a digital copy, and it is 30 volumes. I'm not making that up. You're memorizing an encyclopedia at this point, right? Um, And they were able to preserve the book hundreds of years pretty accurately because these folks would just all memorize, and everybody knew it by heart. Isn't that insane? Um, And if you were good enough at all of that, you would reach the end of your schooling. If you showed enough promise, you would go and see a rabbi. And you would find that rabbi, and you would approach him, and you would ask for permission to follow him. You would, like, present your case, and you would show him your resume, and you would talk some Bible, and you would talk some theology, and he would ask you questions. And if the rabbi thought you were good enough, he would give you permission to follow him. And so you would come, and you would say, all right, you know, rabbi, I want to be your student, and or your disciple, actually, for what it's worth, if you want to know where the... You know, nomenclature is, that's, that's, um, that's it. And so you would go to this rabbi and you would say, may I follow you? And the rabbi would say, no, you can follow me. Or he would say, yeah, it seems like fishing is your business. 
Seems like roofing is your business. Um, seems like baking briskets is your business, or not. Um, <laughs> but what Jesus does, watch this, he walks into the, into the tax booth. This is a guy who's collecting, like, tariff on products coming into a city, right? That's what he was doing. He walks in there to this man collecting for Herod Agrippa, who's very not liked by the Jewish people, and he's, he says to him, follow me. Um, rabbis never, ever, ever, ever solicited followers. It was always the other way around, and it was considered to be one of the highest honors to be at, you know, to ask a rabbi and to be able to follow him. You were like a rock star in Jewish culture if you could do that. But Jesus comes to a man who's a tax collector, lowest of the low, wicked beyond words. I, I, um, I don't think I can't hardly think of anything on the level in our culture that is a legitimate profession. Maybe divorce lawyer, right? Or even worse, like I don't know, abortion doctor. Like it's we're, we're, this is a group of folks like they are not well thought of, and they Jesus walks in there. He sits down with Matthew. He says, "Look, follow me." And what does Matthew do? He gets up and he goes because he would be stupid not to go, right? He's been given the opportunity of a lifetime. Now, mind you, if you read the whole of the Gospels, there are other folks Jesus asks. He says, hey, follow me. And they say, hey, you know what? My dad is sick. going to die any time now. I'm going to hang out here and bury him, and then I'll follow you. Or, um, you know, all these other excuses. Well, you know, I'll follow you, but I've got to do this first. Oh, I'll follow you, but I've got to do this first. Oh, got a harvest in the field. Got to take care of that. I'll follow you after. And they, they offer all these excuses, and like... I, I think there's a parallel here. Now watch this, okay? Um, Matthew is being called to discipleship to Jesus. He is being called to training to become something more. He is being called to learn, learn to be a man of God. From the lowest of the low, most wicked position he could pick in the culture, the Son of God walks in the room and invites him. And he says, yes, but like a lot of us, you know, Jesus, honestly, Jesus calls all of us to discipleship, right? Discipleship is not the optional extra on the car, you know? You buy a car and they say, hey, you want the undercoating? You want the sunroof? You want the satellite radio? You want the extra fluid reservoir and your turn signal fluid? Like all of these great things. So it's, discipleship is actually the life of following Jesus. When we follow Jesus, we are called to pursue becoming like him. And a lot of folks just ignore it. They say, you know what? I will follow you, but I'm going to stay in this tax collector's booth, right? And it does happen. There are folks who are called to follow, and they say, you know what? I'm good with it, but wait until my TV show's over, right? Or I'm good with it, but I, I, I really want to, but I really want to sit here and, and, you know, look at my dirty pictures on the Internet. Or I really want to, but I really don't want anybody to know, so can I follow you at night so nobody can see me? By the way, we have a Pharisee that, like, Jesus meets with several times at night, so nobody knows he's meeting with them. There are folks all the time who are called and either ignore or miss or put it off because it doesn't fit in with what they're doing. Um, sometimes that calling is huge. I'll tell you, I had two instances in my life. When I became a Christian was on Halloween, 20, gosh, 23 years ago. Thank you, honey. Um, I, I had a moment where I sat down and I, 
I made a decision that I would dedicate my life to following Jesus, and that's all I was ever going to do. And then years and years later, having gotten lost, I had a moment where I woke up at 2 in the morning, and I felt this huge weight on me, and I prayed for hours and hours about how totally screwed up my life was, and I asked God just to do anything, anything, anything to make me right again. And I did something about it and started working toward following him. Um, And those are my two follow me moments. And a lot of us have had those. Some of us have seen like God do amazing things. You wake up one day and you're like, wow, I saw God do this. I cannot believe God did this. And God doesn't do miracles because he likes a good magic show. He does it to point toward Jesus, right? Some of you have had near-death experiences. Some of you have had family members pass away, and you sit there and you realize something has to give. Some of you are, like, on the edge of your whole life falling apart because you're, like, so stuck in some area of sin or you're so stuck in some conflict or you're so stuck in some other area. You know, part of your life is just broken, and you're sitting in your tax booth, and you're saying, I'm not following because i got other stuff to do. Or I'm going to follow up here but not in here, right? I know everything I need to know. That's good enough, right, Jesus? And the fact of the matter is that Jesus says, get up and come. Walk away from what you're doing. Do this with me now, now. Um, So later, this isn't the same day. It may be the same day. It may be that evening. It may be days later. Jesus is eating a meal at Matthew's house. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining at the table with Jesus and his disciples. Now, he's eating at Matthew's house. This is a big deal because he's like a prophet. He's healing people. Thousands of people are following him around. I mean, literally, he has got enormous crowds of people everywhere he goes, and he's eating dinner at a tax collector's house, which you wouldn't even think to walk into this guy's house, right? You're eating food that's been bought with stolen money. I mean, if you think about it, right? He's sitting in this guy's house. He is eating. And the Pharisees say, now I've read a couple of commentaries. It doesn't say the Pharisees were in the room. They probably would not have gone into Matthew's house. Um, But he is there. He's eating with them. And who, by the way, if you're a tax collector and honest, God-fearing Jews wouldn't associate with you, who are you going to spend time with? Probably not, actually. Other tax collectors, guys who no one else will hang out with, right? Because all the uncool kids hang out together. Or sinners. Now, sinners is a funny word. It can mean two things when it's used in the scripture. It can be man of the land, by the way, which also means farmer. Just saying. Um, I'm not making that up. Um, Or it can mean somebody who is a, like, serious criminal. And so he's hanging out with, like, the Sopranos or something. I don't know, like these guys who are real criminals. And he's in a room full of like tax collectors and criminals. And he's eating food with them. And the Pharisees get wind of it because this is a small town. Every town in that country was small. By the way, anybody who is from Big Sandy? Anybody do something dumb and the whole town knows about it before you're done? Okay. (laughs) I'm just saying, don't get a speeding ticket right around here. I, it's true. Or I've not gotten five. Rumors get bigger as they go. Um, I only do that as an object lesson so you know that I'm saved by grace. Um, <laughs> wow, I'm getting in trouble here. I wish they had taught me to learn to swim while I was... <laughs> 
All right. And the Pharisees saw this and they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And their response is, why is he spending time with those people? Doesn't he know what they are? What kind of prophet is he if he doesn't realize that these guys, you know, stand in the same room with him? And Jesus' response, now watch this. Um, This would be verse 12 to 13. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus turns around and his response is an insult, but it's an insult that's buried in culture. Okay, so watch this. He, he, he insults them by, first off, he treats them like students. Um, because he speaks and he says a phrase. He says, go and learn what this means, which is what a rabbi would say to a student, right? It's a little like, um, mom, how do you spell onomatopoeia? Go and look it up in the dictionary yourself or misspell it in Google. That's what I do. Um, (laughs) um, He says, you know, Jesus' response, look, these guys are sick. They need me. Mind you, he's healed lepers. He's healed blind people. He's healed lame people. He's healed people who can't talk. He's healed all kinds of folks, right? And he's healed them basically by coming into contact with them sometimes, right? He comes into the house of basically the most wicked men in the town, and he says, these guys are sick. They need me more than the righteous do. By the way, were the Pharisees perfect? Not really. But the problem was they had no idea they were dying. There's no one who is sicker than a man who is dying in his own sin, drowning in his own brokenness, but he can't see it because he's so busy looking down his nose at everybody else. That is a lost man, right? Anybody ever sit in that spot? I'm going to raise my hand. Just me, though? Me and Don? Thanks, Don. Um, Got my back. Um, He says... Go and learn what this means. He insults him. He says, act like, you know, talks to him, down to him, like they're students. I, I came not to call the righteous, but for sinners. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The phrasing there is a little awkward. The way it would be understood by a Jewish person is, I much prefer mercy than sacrifice. Meaning, if you're going to deal with folks, I prefer that you deal with them from a place of mercy. It's more important to me that you're merciful to each other than that you sacrifice to me. Now, this is going to apply in a lot of spots, and follow me here. Um, There's a spot where Jesus is teaching. He says, listen, if you're about to give your offering to God and you realize your brother has something against you, go and make it right before you make your offering because then God will receive what you have to give, right? So Jesus is saying, hey, if you've got a problem with your brother, you're wrong, he's wrong, it doesn't matter. Go and fix it before you worship me because fixing it is a part of the deal. Is that an easy thing to do? No. No. That's a process of training and preparation and work. Peter extends that, by the way. Peter, for, I'm going to plug my marriage class here. Peter says, men, treat your wives right. If you are not right with your wife, basically, God ain't hearing your prayers. Right? You know, be sure you're right with your wife so your prayers aren't hindered. Right? Men, you have an enormous responsibility. Um, marriage class, two weeks from now. Um, <laughs> So we're going to jump ahead a few verses. Jesus continues to teach, preach, share the gospel, heal people. He does all of this stuff. The theme is healing, by the way. He heals this man from a spiritual illness, right? He is lost. He is stuck in his sin. He is dying in his sin. He heals him from it. 
right? The same way as he heals a blind man. As much as we see physical healing as a miracle, and we do, right? We do see physical healing as a miracle. Healing a heart that is far from God is as much of a miracle. Hear me? Being right with God again is as much of a miracle. Men, our calling is to be right with God. It is not an instant process. We jump forward. So Matthew has traveled around with Jesus. They've gone all over. They've healed. Matthew has followed him as a student. He has learned about what Jesus is teaching. He has learned about how to change how he acts. He has learned how to be honest. He's learned about like who God is. He has learned what Jesus has. And we stop in 36. He says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, oh, yeah, sorry, I jumped ahead. My fault. Let me get back there. Uh, And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. Now, I'm doing this one first to demonstrate Matthew spends time with him, right? He travels around. He learns. He does all this stuff. But also because this section begins with this sentence. If you go all the way back to chapter 8, the very beginning, I think it might be the end of chapter 7, this sentence is there. And Matthew does that to demonstrate to a Jewish reader that this is a unit. All of this healing and stuff, all of this preparation, all of this work is a unit. Pay attention to it as a unit because it's got a message. And that message is healing folks, calling folks who are lost back to repentance, fixing our hearts with God. And ultimately we see Matthew training in the process. Follow me. He follows him. He learns from the rabbi. He studies. He becomes better. And he watches. We see Jesus. He comes out and he says, when he saw the crowds, this is 36 through 38, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. By the way, harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Goats, pretty resilient, right? Goats do fine on their own, unless you have a German shepherd, in which case the German shepherd might eat your goats. Um, But sheep, like sheep need protection. They need guidance. They need a leader. They need all of these things because they don't forage, and they're pretty helpless. Animals eat them, and they're dumb, and a whole bunch of other stuff. They scatter and get lost and everything else. And so, like, Jesus looks, and he sees these people, and he's like, look, they got no, no one is taking care of them. No one is leading them. No one is healing them. No one is showing them where to get food. Nobody is taking, like, the spiritual leadership role in their lives. They are stuck and left. So he sees these people, and he's just filled with compassion because they are helpless, and not only are they helpless, but they are without resource to fix it. Now, pause. Matthew is that guy just a little while earlier, right? Matthew is that guy stuck in sin. He's stuck in a spot where even if Matthew in that culture turned around and said, I'm going to quit being a tax collector, I'm going to do right, he is never going to be accepted again. He is out. Right? He wouldn't be welcome in the synagogue. He wouldn't be welcome in church. He wouldn't be welcome to study the scriptures. He wouldn't be welcome to ask questions. He wouldn't be welcome to show, I mean, like, nothing. He's not welcome anymore. Jesus calls him into something better, and he steps into the role of sheep, a shepherd for for helpless sheep, right? Um, And there are folks who end up in that spot where they get stuck, where they get stuck in sin, and they say, well, I'm going to quit this time. I'm going to do better this time. I'm going to fix it this time. I'm going to be better to my family. I'm going to quit looking at this stuff. I'm going to quit drinking too much. I'm going to quit doing this. I'm going to quit doing that. I'm going to quit. And they try really, really, really hard. They can't do it. Right? 
because it's a training process of learning to allow the Holy Spirit to take control and form you into a person who is like Jesus. It is not our efforts, but it is the Holy Spirit reshaping us that makes us different. And it's a process of discipleship where you find somebody to teach you to do it. Sometimes it involves acknowledging you need help, right? I know a lot of folks who will not get help with sin they're struggling with because they won't talk to anyone. They will not grow because they won't ask anyone to help them grow. They will not acknowledge weakness. They will not acknowledge failure. They will not do any of that stuff because their pride prevents them and keeps them stuck, which is where I would argue where Matthew was, but Matthew knows enough to get out of it, and it's where the Pharisees are when they say, hey, look at how stupid that guy is. He's eating with sinners. And Jesus says, you don't even know how sick you are. came to get the sick. You're sick. You don't want to come with me, but you're sick. So we keep going. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The very next verse, by the way, he turns around and he says, okay, these guys, Matthew, John, Peter, called Simon, uh, that guy, that guy, Bartholomew is one of them, all picks out his 12 followers, including Judas. And he pairs them up. He says, go out and do what I've been doing. Would he have been able to do that the first day? No. Guess what he's been doing? He's been training them. They've been healing the sick, preaching the gospel, calling sinners back, teaching, training, preparing, doing all of this work over the course of a long time because, because you don't know how to do the job the first day. I'm trying to think. Larry saw me drive a combine once. Daniel saw me draw a con- drive a combine once. Probably Rebecca. Um, I think I screwed up a baler. Um, I'm pretty sure I, I ran over something I wasn't supposed to run over with the swather one time. Um, when I learned to drive stick, I cannot tell you how many times I stalled it out. I actually wrecked the driver's ed car. I pick on Dusty a lot because her car looks like a demolition derby car after she's done training. But I actually was flirting with a girl in the backseat. It's not that I'm that bad of a driver. It's that I'm distracted. <laughs> um, but the first day out, most folks don't know how to do the work on a farm, do they? So Jesus trains the workers, and then he says, hey, guys, there's a lot to be done. The, the harvest is out there ready to get picked. Pray, pray, pray that God gives us the people to do the work. And then he says, you 12 guys, go do it. And so we all have a job, even if you are mature spiritually, even if you are a leader, even if you are walking on water at home and at work and in the lives of those around you, like people look at you and they say, Jesus, through and through, because you are awesome, you should be praying for more laborers and training them, right? I learned more about dealing with difficult kids um, by following around a guy who worked with mentally ill kids than I did... um, showing up to work at a church for five years. Isn't that crazy? Watching somebody who did it well taught me how to do it well. You want to teach someone to be a godly man, act like a godly man with them and guide them through the process. Train them, which is what discipleship is. By the way, we're called to make disciples. If you're a man in this room, if you're a woman in this room, it is true as well, Um, but it is especially epidemic in shortfall amongst men. 
Um, if you are mature, even a little bit, your job is to find someone less mature and train them. If you've got areas of struggle for, like falling short or sin, your job is to find someone to teach you to overcome it and overcome it. If your marriage is messed up, your job is to fix it. Men, women too. But men, the Bible gives you a special like primary responsibility there. Um, our job, folks... The harvest is plentiful in this town. Do you believe me? There are people in this community who want more, who are hungry for better, who see anyone who is living by standards and standing up and reflecting who Jesus is, and it's like a glass of cold water on a hot day. You ever been out? I'm assuming. I I remember once I was um, digging a trench around a house, to, to kill termites, and it was in Houston. It was 110% humidity and 110 degrees because Houston is like the suburbs of hell. Um, I'm not going to make a joke about my in-laws living there. Um, <laughs> I love them. Um, and I remember getting off work, and I was wearing long sleeves and, like, black pants because it was for work, you know, and that was the uniform. And I went to a gas station, and I bought a $42 bottle of Avion, and it was the best-tasting water I ever remember drinking. Guess why? I was thirsty. For some of y'all, you meet, like, people who your very presence is that kind of cold water, right? Because they're hurting, because the people around them are hurting them. Garbage they're hiding all the time, and they're dying for the fact that they're hiding it. Some of y'all carry Jesus into their lives. Our job is to train to be better at it. Our job is to train others. You want to be good at the things God is calling you to do as a man? Find someone to teach you to do it. My challenge to you this week, men. Women, my challenge to you is if you're unhappy that I'm only talking to men, please come talk to me about it. Um, And support the men around you and encourage them and challenge them in this area. Um, Do it respectfully and do it lovingly. Um, Men, my challenge to you is Look at your life. Are you growing? Are you doing the work? Is the harvest rotting in the field while you're watching television? Are you training to do better? Are you comfortable with where you're at? There are days that I look around and I try to find bad husbands. So I can say, man, I got this nailed down. Right? Can I get an amen? (laughs) Um, There are days that I try to find bad Christians so I can feel like I got it nailed down. If you're not looking to those that are better than you, if you're not looking to Jesus and saying, I need to do this better, you're looking the wrong way, friends. My challenge to you is to train, to study, to find somebody to teach you to do it. Because, folks, there are people dying around us. We don't know what day it's going to happen. We don't know what hour it could happen. We don't know, honestly, it's what's been on my mind all morning talking to the Durgas with this car wreck thing, right? You don't know. You just don't know. You don't. God's given us a job to do. We need to do it before we run out of time. Let's pray and we will go eat, right? And vote for Eric. Are we doing judges or people's choice? (laughs) So I've got to beat you twice again. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us today. I pray that you would be with the men in this room. I pray that you would challenge them. I pray that you would inspire them. I pray that the callings in their life would be apparent, the places that they're called to stand and be your people, the lives that they're called to touch, the 
areas where they have to clean up their own yard and, and make it right, Lord God. Bring that out. Show us how we need to grow. Show us how we need to do better, Lord God. Make us into disciples who serve you. Touch the lives of those around us. And literally that folks look at us and they know who Jesus is because like, we act like him. Help us to become men after your own heart. Help us to train to do that. Help us to stand firm, Lord God, to be alert, to act like men, um, to do everything in love and to do that other thing I can't remember at the moment. Um, Bless us in this effort in Christ's name. Amen.